Luke chapter number 10. Beginning with verse 25. I'm going to begin to introduce some things. It may not be consecutive. may be sporadic. But we're going to call them kingdom concepts. Okay? Kingdom concepts. Things that if we're going to be who God's called us to be, there's some things that we have to know. Kingdom concepts. Whenever you hear me say that, just know that it's going to be something that may just kind of touch you a little bit deeper on the inside. May not be a whole lot of fluff. May not make you run and shout. But it, it'll help you live for God. That's what we want. Is We want to know how to live for God to the best of our ability. So we're going to begin our first kingdom concept. And as the Lord lays these on my heart, this has been on my heart for a couple of weeks. And sometimes I just let the Lord kind of just like a crock pot. It's just got to cook a little while. And, and I'm hurrying this, this evening because um, I got a lot to say, and we may not finish it all. We may have to do a part two, but I think this is going to be a very good foundation. We're going to begin reading verse 25 of Luke chapter number 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, speaking of the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and met him on his own and put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. First kingdom concept I want to teach on this morning. I'm going to borrow the question that the lawyer asked Jesus. Who is my neighbor? That's what I want to teach on. Who is my neighbor? Lord bless you as you're seated. Thank you for standing for a rather lengthy text. Who is my neighbor? If you're familiar with the word of the Lord and the Old Testament and the New Testament, then you also understand that throughout most of the Old Testament, salvation was based upon the law. 
The Old Testament simply means the Old Covenant. It's, it's the covenant prior to the arrival of Jesus Christ on this earth. And that covenant was a covenant that was based solely off of obedience and willingness. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, you'll find it was not a faith-based salvation. In the entire Old Testament, the word faith is only mentioned two times because salvation was not faith-based in the Old Testament. It was based upon obedience to the law and upon bringing your sacrifices and ritualism didn't require faith. It required obedience. But when we transition to the New Testament or the New Covenant, you see a transition also. While God still requires faith, or rather obedience and willingness, he added another dimension to the covenant. And that was the dimension of faith. Jesus did not come to contradict the law, but Jesus came to fulfill the law. He said in Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is why John said in, in verse, 17, uh, verse 17 of John chapter 1, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What is truth? Truth is Jesus. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot separate truth and Jesus because they're one and the same. You cannot love Jesus without loving truth. They're one and the same. They're inseparable. So the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, grace was not extended in the Old Testament like it was in the New Testament. If we read the Old Testament, there's a lot of times that judgment came repeatedly for different things. Why? Because grace hadn't been given yet. Grace, in, 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 as it pertains to salvation, came through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came, the introduction of faith or grace. And when grace came, it brought faith. Faith became the main ingredient. This is why Paul said in Ephesians 2 and 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace is the means whereby salvation is made possible. It's the unmerited favor of God. It's what you didn't ask for, but God give, gave you anyway. But faith has to cooperate with grace. For instance, how do you know God has given you grace? You can't see it. You didn't speak directly to a person that you saw with your eyes. You don't necessarily 
feel it, but your faith tells you that God gave me grace. Your faith. Everything we do in the New Testament dispensation is faith-based. We lift our hands and we worship a God that we cannot see because we have faith that we believe God inhabits the praises of his people. We don't see it, but we do it based upon faith. You kneel down in your private time in prayer and you pray to a God that you don't know what he looks like, but you have faith that you believe he hears. Faith, faith. Thus your salvation is faith-based. It's an invisible exchange between you and God. And while Jesus walked on this earth, there were those who professed to be experts in the law. They didn't didn't understand what was happening. When Jesus was walking on this earth, he he was the visible transition of an invisible covenant. He was trying to transition between the old law and the old way of salvation to the new dispensation which was going to happen upon the resurrection and upon Pentecost and the, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and it was it was a, a faith-based salvation. And thus he would encounter people that were supposed experts in the law. Pharisees and teachers and Sadducees and rabbis and it was a very uh, ritualistic cut and dry black and white for instance if I'll give you an example you recall the story where they caught the woman in the very act of adultery and the very people that brought her to Jesus were some of the ones that were the most educated in the law the law of Moses And they said, we caught her in the very act of adultery. Wasn't hearsay. They knew she did it. And the law says. They knew what the law said. But Jesus was trying to introduce another element to salvation. It wasn't so black and white. Now, hear me. Sin is still sin. I'm not trying to say sin, you can compromise in that area. That's not what I'm trying to say. But he was trying to show them what the New Testament was going to look like, what we're living in. And so this is what he said. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now, the Bible says this. Jesus was first seated, but he got up and he began to write on the ground. From the seated position, that's the the seated position is the position of judgeship. And as a judge in the seated position, he could have executed judgment on the person that was in the wrong. But he got up from the seated position and he leaned down and he began to write in the ground. And when he was done writing, everybody had disappeared. And he said, where then is thy accusers? Now, if you draw the parallel in the spirit, God inhabited the throne in heaven and As a judge, he could have executed judgment on every single one of us because we were dead in trespasses and sin. But he didn't. He changed positions, and he came down to earth, and he offered grace 
to whosoever will believe on him. Kingdom concepts. He's, he changed positions. So here the religious people were known for their hypocrisy. That's why Jesus told them, y'all are painted up sepulchers full of dead men bone, dead men's bones. You're so worried about the outside, but the inside is the biggest problem. And you'll hear me say it over and over and over. If the outside looks good, but the inside is wrong, something else, the outside is not the problem. The inside is the problem. We got to get the inside where it needs to be and living for God. So Jesus was approached by this lawyer. And Jesus wasn't trying to introduce anything new. He was simply, while he was on this earth, he was revealing aspects of his nature that were previously hidden to the wise. Keep in mind that kingdom concepts will generally contradict what the world calls normal. But what the world calls normal is really abnormal. Because everything changed when sin was introduced. And what God had to do was get everybody back to what is really normal. The world is abnormal. We're normal. Kingdom concepts. And so uh, we have to, to get back to what God intended for us to live by. In verse 25, we see one of these well-educated lawyers addressing Jesus. The Bible says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit inter eternal life? This man was well-versed in the law of Moses. And one commentary said that when he said, the Bible says he, was, he tempted him, what he actually was doing was he feigned a desire to be instructed but rather he did it to perplex him or to lead him, if possible, to contradict some of the maxims of the law. What, what basically, he was trying to set Jesus up in the form of a question like he really desired something, but he was trying to trick Jesus. Jesus knew this, and he asked him, what is written in the law? What's the law say? How do you read the law? He knew this man knew the law, so he put, he put the ball back in his court. Jesus referred him to the law as a safe rule and asked him what was said there. The lawyer was endeavoring to justify himself by obeying the law, which meant he would rely on his own works. Watch this. Jesus showed him what the law required and thus showed him that he needed a better righteousness than his own, which is the proper use of the law. Now, by comparing ourselves with that or with the law, we thus then see our own defects and thus we are prepared to welcome a better righteousness than our own, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus the law becomes a schoolmaster to lead us closer to him. Let me break it down for you. What Jesus was trying to do was say, okay, compare yourself to the law. But the law is not the end of salvation. It's the beginning of salvation. Because the law will reflect in your own life all of your own defects. And then, even if you did everything perfect, 
Your righteousness is still not sufficient for salvation because the Bible says that our righteousness is as of filthy rags in the sight of God. Thus, we have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What does righteousness mean? Basically, it means right standing with God. And in our flesh, we cannot be in right standing with God. The only way it's possible is through salvation through Jesus Christ and his spirit within us. Let me bring you to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Bible says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we may be justified by faith. Verse 25, but after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. What Paul is trying to say is there was a time when the law was the only means of salvation. But that law was not the end of salvation. It was the beginning of salvation. And it served as a schoolmaster or a teacher to draw us and navigate us closer to Jesus Christ. Because once we got his spirit within us, salvation was no longer based upon works, but it was based upon faith because we are children of God. As New Testament Christians... Yes, we have to obey the the word of God and discern right from wrong according to the scripture. But our salvation is not solely based upon obedience. Do you realize there's going to be good moral people that have lived good lives, making good choices, and they're not going to make heaven? Good people. But it's not about how good you are. It's about what's happening on the inside. And that is the spirit of Christ dwelling in us. That's what salvation is all about. Let me draw this example for you. In America, there is a law stating that a, a woman or a parent must take care of her child. This is just an illustration. So if one day a man comes to that mother's home and says, are you taking care of your baby? The law says... You have to take care of your baby. That mother's holding that baby and she says, I don't need a law to make me take care of my baby. Why? Because she loves her baby. She feeds him, she holds him, she changes him because she loves him and she no longer needs a law to tell her to do so. That's what happened in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that love was placed in our heart and we don't need a law to tell us how to to serve God. We do it because we love God. We we pray because we love Jesus. We come to an altar because we love. We don't do it because the law tells us to do it. We're living under the law of Christ, which is a law of love. So he comes. He answering said, 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus answered him and said, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Now, he knew the guy's motives. And he wasn't saying that this man was right because he knew what was fixing to come. He was just saying, hey, that's what the law says. You answered that right. He wasn't endorsing him, but this is what he, he said. The Bible says in verse 29, he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That was that was the whole setup. He was trying to get all the way around to basically, all right, Jesus, tell me who I have to love. He knew in his mind. He was trying to get himself out of the difficulty by throwing on Jesus the definition of neighbor, which the Jews interpreted very narrowly and technically. Excluded Samaritans, excluded Gentiles. Basically, he was wanting Jesus to say, you just have to love the Jews. We think of neighbor, naturally the first thing that I think about is my neighbor that lives next door to me. And the second thing I think about is State Farm. Because I've had State Farm insurance since I started driving. Like a good neighbor, they care. Cheap plug, Brother Blake. You can thank me later. But what does neighbor really mean? Who is my neighbor? If we define it as the person that lives next to me, then we only have to love three or four people. That'd be easy, unless you just have some really horrible neighbors. But kingdom concepts are different. So Jesus, knowing that this man was trying to justify his lack of love and why he didn't love people, Jesus answered him in this manner. He said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now Jesus began with the top of the religious world in that day. He began with a priest. And historians believe that there were some 12,000 priests in Jericho. So it was common for a priest to go from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so Beginning with the religious order, he said this priest walked and he saw him and he kept on walking. And likewise, a, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite would represent laity. They assisted the priest in the duties of the temple. And notice the progression. The priest walked on by. Next dimension, the Levite saw him and came and even saw how, how desperate he was. Kept on going. So then, a Samaritan, 
as he journeyed, came where he was, and saw him, and then had compassion on him. A Samaritan was an extreme foe or enemy of the Jews. So Jesus is using this, this order, the priests, the Levites, the people that should have all of the compassion. But now let's get down to the most extreme opposite of this man. And he not only went by and saw, but then he stopped and he had compassion. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Now Jesus poses the question. He's answering this man's question with the question. The lawyer said, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves. He put the ball back in his court. And he said, he that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. So here's the whole concept. Neighbor is not defined by identity. It's defined by action. Neighbor is not a who, it's a how. It's not who's living next to me. It's not who's sitting in the same church pew as I sit. It's not defined by an identity. It's not defined by who a person is. It's defined by how we treat them. Jesus said a neighbor is anybody that you show mercy toward. Who is my neighbor? Who, who am I being merciful to? That's my neighbor. Who should I be merciful to? That's my neighbor. This should not be a church person only definition. Because it was the preacher and it was the laity Thank you, Brother Dakota, that walked on by. But it was the person that was the extreme enemy that stopped and showed mercy. You know what's going to define the children of God? Mercy. Mercy. I am thoroughly convinced, Brother Jamie, that when we get to heaven, that 30 minutes of silence, that's going to be because we're shocked at who made it and who didn't. Man looketh on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And we better be careful who we put X's on. Because those people that you put X's on, God may be erasing those X's because we don't know what's happening in their private time in prayer. 
We don't know what's happening. I, I'll never forget one of the most beautiful, beautiful funerals. If I could ever, if I could use that, put those two words together, beautiful funerals that I ever attended was of a man that I knew that he was in and out of church. Boom, back and forth. He was one of those that he'd be, he was a, like a bottle rocket. Boy, he just took off. And then he'd just fizzle. Then here a while later, he'd come up and he'd take off. And he'd just fizzle. And I'll be honest, I went to that funeral partly out of love for the family, but partly out of curiosity to see how this preacher was going to, who was preaching that funeral, was going to handle his eulogy. I wanted to take me some notes in case I was ever in that same situation. It was the most masterful, masterful funeral. As that preacher began to talk, and he said, everyone in this room is well aware of the struggles that this man had in his life. He said, we're not trying to hide those struggles. We're not trying to ignore them and act like none of that stuff happened. He said, we don't know what this man, but he might have prayed through it the last moment. He said, because I can tell you that in that hospital room, he was talking in tongues and he had a powerful visitation from the Lord. He said, so what do you do in a situation like this with a person that we all know his history? He said, I'm going to tell you, we're going to do the only thing I know to do. We're going to put them in the hands of a merciful God. Don't you know that's all we, in fact, we're not supposed to judge, but we're supposed to put everybody just in the hands of God. If that was you, you'd want people to put you in the hands of a merciful God. Jesus said this, if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Hey, our objective is to be opposite of the world. And people who don't know God, they're nice to people that are nice to them. Anybody can be nice to the people that are nice to you, but what sets us apart is we're nice to people that aren't nice to us. It's kingdom concepts. We love people that don't love us. If Jesus operated by the concepts of the world, be nice to people that are nice to you, love people that love you, he would have never come to earth because nobody loved him. Nobody loved him. But grace brought that love. Mercy brought that love. Show me a church where there is love and I will show you a church that's a power in the community. Read a story by D.L. Moody in Chicago. One time, there was a little boy who attended a Sunday school, and his parents moved to another part of the city. The little fellow st still kept coming back to the same Sunday school, although it meant that he had a long, tiresome walk each way. One day, a friend of his asked him why he went so far, and told him that there was plenty of other churches just as good closer to his house. He said, there may be, they may be as good for others, but not for me. The other friend asked him, why not? He said, because over there they love me. They love me. If only we could make the world believe that we love them, I believe there'd be fewer empty churches. 
a smaller proportion of our population who never darken a church door. We have to let love replace duty. We're not here out of duty. We're here out of love. Love. The mercy you receive is solely based on the mercy that you give. It's the law of the harvest. You want people to be nice to you? Be nice to them. He that wants friends and desires friends must first show himself friendly. You cannot, in a year from now, look at a field and say, next year I'm going to get some corn out of that field. And you show up a year later and you go to pick corn, there's not going to be any corn. Because you can only reap what you first sow. And if you want goodness, you got to sow goodness. If you want mercy, you got to sow mercy. Luke 6.36, be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. If we're supposed to be like Jesus Christ, we have to give the same things that he gives. If he gives mercy, we have to give mercy. Then Jesus says, judge not and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Watch this, verse 38. Everybody always puts it with finances. It's not talking about finances. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, Shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Now, it will apply to finances. It applies to the law of the harvest. But the context, you got to take this book and you got to read it in context. You can't take it out of context and make it fit your ideologies. The context that Jesus was using was mercy. And he's saying, if you want mercy, you've got to give mercy. I've heard it said before in churches, when, especially when teenagers started acting up, or situations happen in a church. It happens in every church. It's not just this, this church. It happens everywhere. I've heard people say, well, I just don't know why that person won't handle that. I just don't know why they we can't take care of that. I just don't know what. Let me tell you why. Sometimes I've noticed, as an evangelist, I would go into a church. The Lord would begin to show me things that I needed to preach and things that were going on. I would just lock myself away in prayer and let the Lord, he would lay me out. If I, if I knew I was going to be there five, six, seven weeks, the Lord would literally just give me a timeline of what I was supposed to preach. Because the Lord told me when I started evangelizing, the Lord told me, he said, you are going to go in there and preach things that a pastor cannot preach because he has too much knowledge of it. He said, but by the time you're done, nobody can accuse you of having knowledge of the situation. So I'm telling you, I, I, that's why quiet crowds don't bother me because I preached and they were staring holes through me. And I knew I was reading some mail. I knew it. But I've also seen God through an evangelist do 
deal with situations. And the pastor never had to draw a sword because God extended mercy towards people. And they came to an altar and they repented and they got themselves right. If we just give a little bit of mercy, because it may be that one day your child or your family member or you yourself are in a situation and you want people to be merciful towards you. And if you want people to be merciful towards you, then you have to first give that mercy out. You have to give that mercy. There's people not sitting on church pews today that still believe this book. If you talk to them about truth, they'll tell you what truth is. They know this book. But they were hurt because mercy wasn't given to them when they needed it the most. Let me just say this. There's going to be times when people in this congregation, it seems like it's a revolving door and they're always starting over. That's just people. But we ought to show the same mercy to the person that failed a hundred times that we do the person that's coming for the first time to an altar. We ought to give the same amount of mercy, the same amount of love. We love them to an altar. We love them to the cross. We're not judging anybody. We're loving them. Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is he that I show mercy toward. It don't matter if they go to church with me. It doesn't matter if they're on the other side of the world. If I meet them in Jonesville, if I meet them in Harrisonburg, if I don't know them, or if they are my bitter enemy. We hate to think that we have enemies. But there's people that don't like us. There's people that don't like you. That's life. But you know how you love them? Pray for them. They did a study years ago. I don't have all the logistics. I'm going to give you just the, the, in a nutshell. They told people to start acting a certain way towards people they didn't like. And you know what happened? They started liking those people that they didn't like. Because they started, you do it on the inside first. You let, you let motion dictate emotion. Don't let emotion dictate motion. You put it into motion and your emotions will follow. But as long as you rely on your emotions, it's not going to follow. You got to put it into practice. You got to put it into practice. Love. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one toward another. It's action. You've seen, you've seen in bathrooms. I get revelations in just the silliest ways, but one day I was. Those things you got to wave at them to get the paper towel dispenser to come out, you know. I like them old ones where if you needed to bathe with it and dry off, you can just keep cranking that whole roll out, dry your whole body off. Now they give you six inches at a time and you sit there and do this number the whole time. 
One day I was doing that right there. Brother James on the front of that thing, you know what I saw? This is what it said. Motion activated. That's what love is. Love is motion activated. When you do it, even when you don't feel like it, then you'll start feeling like doing it. Because you know, married, you couples, love has to go beyond an emotion. It's a commitment. It's an action. My wife, she's taking care of me when she didn't feel like taking care of me. I only get sick, Lord willing, once or twice a year. But you, those one or two times a year, I'm the biggest baby you've ever seen because i got to make sure I get my Sprite and I get my Popsicles and I get all of it. And come on, men. You know what it's like. You need mama to take care of you. i got to get it all those one or two times a year. Who is my neighbor? It could be somebody you're close to, someone you don't know. It can be an enemy. It's all determined by who you have mercy towards. And if you look back over your life, I'm sure, I'm positive. I, I know, let me just use myself as an example. There's been some situations I could have extended a little more mercy than what I did. There's been some people that I could have, I remember one time I had a young person. Every time, it seemed like on Sunday, He'd pray back through. Two weeks later, he was gone. A little while later, he'd come in the service and he'd plead and cry. God, fill him with the Holy Ghost. Renew the Holy Ghost. and He'd do good for a little while and he'd roll back. And there was one time, I remember he'd come to that altar and I thought to myself, I'm not going to pray with him. I done prayed with him so many times. And the Lord convicted me. And he told me, he said, Tyler, you don't know if this will be the service I decide to take him. And I made up my mind. I'll pray with him as hard, number 50, as I did the first time. Because it's not, it's not up to me to judge. It's up to me to love and to pray and to encourage. Because I want everybody to make it to heaven. Stand with me. Who is my neighbor? Kingdom concepts. Things that we have to know if we're going to live for God and be who God called us to be. We have to get this stuff deep down on the inside. Lord Jesus, I pray today for every person in this class this morning. Lord, we don't want this word to fall on bad soil. We don't want it to fall on rocky soil. But Lord, I pray that you will let that word that we heard this morning, this evening, let it illuminate our soul. And God, give us a greater capacity to love and to extend mercy towards others. Lord, if there's anybody in our life that we need to make things right with, we want to do it. We want to love people. Bless these people this evening in Jesus' name. Why don't you spend just the next few moments, get out of your pews, shake hands with somebody around. At 6 o'clock, we're going to begin our evening worship.